Compliance is a profession where people work tirelessly to make the world a better place. And there are hundreds of amazing and inspiring women who have helped the field develop into what it is today. Great Women in Compliance is part of the Compliance Podcast Network. So join Mary Shirley and Lisa Fine as they talk with women in compliance who are making a difference. Hi, you're listening to the Great Women in Compliance Podcast on the Compliance Podcast Network with Mary Shirley and Lisa Fine. Today, we have a really exceptional episode. I am speaking with Dr. Susan Leoto, the founder and managing director of Susan Leoto and Associates Limited. This is a consultancy in ethics matters with a global reach. She is the author of The Power of Ethics, How to Make Good Choices in a Complicated World. She teaches ethics at Stanford University. She's the founder of the Ethics Incubator, which is a nonprofit independent cross-sector laboratory and collaborative platform for innovative ethics called the Ethics Incubator, as I just mentioned. Um, and for those of you who regularly listen to Quick, you know that one of the podcasts that I love is Dax Shepard's Armchair Expert. So you can imagine my excitement when Susan's episode came on, a powerhouse female who makes ethics approachable and engaging in a way that can resonate to a large, diverse audience. And just as we often say to people, reach out to someone if you're interested in them or get in touch in LinkedIn and see what happens. I was so thrilled because not only did I reach out to Susan, but she replied and said she was willing to join me on the podcast. So for everyone, I really enjoyed The Power of Ethics, um, which was released this past year. And it was really of some particular assistance to me when I think about trainings I do and communicating and connecting with people. So with that introduction, thank you so much, Susan. And let's start by having you talk about your background and how you got into ethics. Well, Lisa, thank you so much. And for everybody who's listening, thank you for listening. It's really a pleasure for me to be here. So I actually started out um, in something very similar. I started out as a corporate lawyer at Sullivan and Cromwell in New York and working on very big international deals, a lot of capital markets deals, a lot of M&A. And uh, it was a great experience. It was a 24-7 experience. We didn't sleep a lot. Uh, we didn't have cell phones in those days. We really almost didn't have the internet because the firm thought that it was a security risk. So um, it was lots of documents, um, lots of hard work, lots of really meticulous looking at the law, but also the beginnings of kind of pushing the edge of things that we really didn't fully understand how to regulate. So one example was derivative securities were coming out and nobody quite understood where the risks were or what we should do or, or even something as simple as what does an SEC prospectus look like with derivatives? Um, long story short, like uh, many women, I had to move to, I was living in Paris at the time with my husband and he had to move to the US. So I had to move to the US and uh, Sullivan and Cromwell didn't have an office in Palo Alto. So uh, I became an associate dean at Stanford Law School and started looking at teaching and, and administering. And also uh, that was a time when Silicon Valley technology was starting to take off, but there wasn't a lot of law around it. And I started to realize that there is so much happening in the world that the law isn't quite getting right or isn't quite catching up with. Um, and uh, fast forward, I ended up uh, years later moving to London. Um, I now chair the trustees of the London School of Economics and Political Science. And um, I've done a lot more work on governance and ethics. And in particular in this space where I think the law is falling short. So there is a lot of good law about uh, a lot of good compliance and, and legal work that is being done. But I think the question we all need to be asking ourselves today is, where is the law falling short as a guide to decision-making? Where is the law unable 
um, to detect and prevent? And where is the law um, something that we need to be thinking is the lowest common denominator instead of the highest standards of behavior, even where it does function well? So um, that's where I am. And I started um, this teaching again at Stanford about eight years ago, one term a year. And, um, and as you said, uh, Lisa, very kindly, I've been working for many years on this book to try to make ethical decision-making accessible to many people as opposed to sort of just another corporate ethics book. Yeah, and that's one thing that really hit me. And as you talk about uh, being at a New York-based law firm, I started my career at a Wild Gottschall, which is also a New York firm. And I, I remember those days well when everyone was afraid of the internet and boy, has it changed. Um, so also with that, you know, you in the book, you talk a lot, as you said, about ethical decision-making and practical ways to look at those issues. And you divided it into six forces and how you see those to drive ethics. Can you talk a bit about a few of these forces or all of them and how you see them as influencing decision-making? Sure. So the background on the six forces is that for many, many years, through research, through advising clients across sectors, corporates, NGOs, governments, and through teaching, I realized that one of the most intimidating things about ethics today, even for sophisticated uh, compliance professionals, is that it seems like there's ethics of all kinds of different things. There's what's the ethics of gene editing? What's, what's the ethics of artificial intelligence? Uh, what's the ethics of social media? What's the ethics of uh, you know, pandemics for that matter? Um, how, do, how is the pandemic going to affect even compliance? So what I realized is that um, I was looking to find a way to distill what really matters in ethical decision-making across any kind of decision, whether it's personal or professional, scientific or emotional, doesn't matter. And what I've done is I've distilled these six forces and once you start to recognize them and they become very easily recognizable when you read the book, you'll see them in any ethical decision you have to face um, in any area of life. And so we start to look at them in terms of the types of ethics challenges or the things that drive ethics challenges as opposed to the subject matter specialty like artificial intelligence. So the first one I call banish the binary. Um, we, Lisa, we're at a moment of uh, sort of epic binary thinking, of, of taking sides, of extreme polarization, of, of yes or no, in or out, black or white. And in my view, most of the decisions we have to make today that are complicated are gray. And what we need to be doing is we need to be asking when and under what circumstances should we do this, not should we or shouldn't we. We should be looking for opportunity and we should be looking to mitigate risk. And indeed, one of the things about technology is that failure to seize opportunity because we are binary, because we say too risky, absolutely not, can actually become one of our greatest risks. So imagine if we decided that social media risks like bullying and disinformation and data privacy were such that we were just going to say, this is enough, we're shutting it down. But then imagine what that does to all the people in the world for whom social media is the only way to connect to family and friends or indeed to work or to find medical information. So we need to banish binary thinking. We need to get out of um, creating discussions where people take sides. And sometimes this can flow from compliance um, issues. Sometimes it flows from larger ethical issues like, you know, recently uh, in the news, Google selling drones to the military. It was very much with employees and management, a yes or a no, as opposed to, you know, how might we do this and or limit how we do it so that we don't do the whole thing. We make it a little bit more ethically palatable, but we're not, you know, we're not just saying yes or no. 
So that's one. Uh, a really fundamental one I call compromised truth. Um, compromised truth is really any kind of cherry picking the convenient facts or disregarding expertise or science uh, or disinformation in the worst uh, in the worst case scenario. And what I basically believe is that there's no such thing as alternatively factual ethics. Ethics rest on truth. And so we need to, in organizations and as individuals, uh, sort of redouble our efforts in this world where we are all affected by disinformation, all affected by this uh, mistrust of expertise. We need to really be careful about how we think about that in, um, in our daily lives. And even in, for example, a lot of large organizations, as employees come back to work, what are we setting up as mandatory? What are we setting up as voluntary? Um, how are we dealing with, with employees who in their very real world don't trust the vaccine or don't trust the expert, the scientific experts or are spreading disinformation on social media? So that's another one. And then I'll just, I'll pick a third. And then if you want to delve into the others, we, we can do that as well. Um, unethical behavior spreads like wildfire. And what occurred to me and what um, maybe some of, of your listeners have experienced is you, you read the newspaper and it feels like you're reading the same news over and over again. And you wonder why it is that, you know, one bank was manipulating LIBOR and then another one and another one and another one, or what, one social media platform has a particular data privacy issues and another and another and another. And so I was interested in how unethical behavior spreads. And from a compliance standpoint, that's particularly key, right? Because you obviously want to prevent any unethical behavior, but you certainly also want to be able to identify it and quash it where it starts so that you don't get into a situation like 3.5 million fraudulent accounts at Wells Fargo, um, where you catch it after, after five fraudulent accounts. Um, so... Uh, the thing about unethical behavior and contagion is that we're so focused on getting rid of the behavior we don't want that we don't think about what causes it to spread. So in the book, I give a whole, um, just to be very practical, um, particularly for compliance teams, I give a list of some of the most important drivers of the spreading of unethical behavior. And many of them can also be used to provoke spreading positive ethics. Um, so it goes in both directions. And these are partly non-techie, some real classics that you'll all recognize, like greed, uh, jealousy, information silos, skewed incentives, and the like. And by the way, compliance processes and laws and regulations can skew incentives, can actually trigger some of these drivers, even they're, when they're well-intended and aiming to eradicate unwanted behavior. And then some of the drivers of the spreading can be techie, like gene editing or social media, or even just the internet full stop, uh, or platforms uh, that companies use like Slack. So, um, so those are three of the six, and and we can certainly talk about others if, if you'd like to. Right. Well, I was going to actually talk a little bit about what you were just saying, a little bit about contagion as well, um, and follow into something. I think you're right. I mean, I, we notice it every, every day, you know, the positive versus negative behaviors. And when you put business pressures in for one person versus several, um, that can become a tremendous issue. And, you know, one thing that goes along with that and generally is that, you know, what are we required to do 
and what is a higher and more appropriate ethical standard and how do we turn that into more of a, a contagion or a positive moving forward? Because you talked about the positive versus the negative. I think for some of our compliance and ethics professionals, I talk, I try to talk a lot more about ethical decision-making than compliance. You know, following the law is a little different than the belief that I think most people are trying to do the right thing. So I think with that in mind, you know, for us, how do we help people think about that ethical standard and, and use the point of contagion to, to spread that? Well, that's a really great question, Lisa. And it's um, it's uh, really important for compliance people. It's really important for legal teams. Um, but I think there are a couple ways to look at this. One is you can sit back and you can assess your compliance uh, guidelines, regulations, requirements, policies, practices, and say, where might this actually be creating problems? And you can have all, and I work with compliance teams all the time to look and say, well, you know, that isn't, you know, you need to, to not allow X behavior, but the way you're doing it is going to skew incentives. It's going to drive people to do something else to get around it, or it's going to exhaust people. So, you know, an example in government policy is, in France, during uh, this a whole bad COVID year, everybody was required to wear masks 24-7 anytime you were outside, even in a park, even where there was nobody around. Now, wearing masks, I am a big fan of the maximum safety with respect to COVID. I want to be clear about that. But wearing masks 24-7 when you were not near any other human being, you were in the middle of a gigantic city park, it was just excessive exhaustion. And so um, it wore people down so that the things that really mattered, the times you really wanted them to wear masks, the times you wanted them to respect the curfew that the French government had, people were just worn out and they just started, you know, there was start, they started rebelling. So, so that's one thing. The second thing is um, to realize that no matter how good your compliance infrastructure is, it's not going to catch everything. It's not designed to catch everything. People's behavior, they need to think about, um, as I say in the book, what is the impact of their behavior on other people? You're calling it doing the right thing. Sometimes that's hard these days because sometimes there's right and wrong, as I said, non-binary on all sides of a decision. But certainly with some areas, binary still holds. Sexual misconduct, racism, spreading disinformation, violating the law, that's binary. There's no, you know, that's straight up unacceptable. But I think people need to be aware of the impact of their decisions on other people and even on their on their organization. And then they need to step back and think about what consequences could happen. So one you know, example I'm sure you and, and most of your viewers are familiar with is the historic example of Tylenol, where from a legal standpoint, the lawyers in the company were telling the CEO, look, you know, you don't want to take Tylenol off the tainted, what they thought Tylenol had been tainted. You don't want to take it off the shelves because that could trigger lawsuits. People will get the idea. And the CEO said, I'm having none of it, all the Tylenol off the shelves. And he had a pretty bad year economically, but then he recovered. Um, and so that's an example of going above and beyond the legal advice. Um, and I think everybody needs to be mindful of the times where you know, where could you go above and beyond or where could the legal advice itself, like you actually are complying, but wow, it's not a good, it's not a good potential outcome from a standpoint of, as you say, Lisa, doing the right thing. Yeah, I think um, one of the things that you, you talk about in the book to start the book is a very interesting story about Airbnb versus Boeing handling some different parts of situations. 
And I'm not going to talk about it anymore because I want everyone to get excited to read the book about it. But just talking about the difference in how when leadership makes a tough decision and looks at the big picture and what is ethical and what is right and how that really can resonate throughout an, an organization. And that showed some tone from the top. For us as the ethics and compliance leaders, you know, how can we help make sure that people live up to that standard as you're talking about right now, doing the, the right thing in the big picture, which isn't necessarily just looking at it from a compliance standpoint? Uh, so another great question. I mean, one thing is what I'm trying to do with this book is to help all of you have tone from everywhere. That means tone right down to the delivery person who's going to deliver a package. Um, and it's really, really important that, you know, bad decisions from an ethical standpoint happen at all levels of an organization. So it's really important that everybody be sensitized. But the way we were thinking about so-called corporate ethics before, it was very much toned from the top. Like if you manage the CEO, you had done your job. Or if you manage the board of the CEO, you'd done your job. Um, and it was sort of like people would go into a room and white smoke would come out and there would be decisions made. But nobody else really felt empowered. And that partly was because ethics was made too complicated. So one of the things I do in the book is I distill a forward framework that becomes a habit that absolutely anybody, irrespective of education level, age, culture, can use. So one thing is to, to be spreading it. And one way to spread it is concretely to, to use this, um, this framework, to make this a habit in meetings, to make this a habit in one-on-one -on -one discussions, and just get in the habit of, of integrating ethics into decisions without necessarily belaboring it for everything, um, but it works for little things and it works for big things. The second um, is to, you know, courage is a really, really important part of this, even for senior compliance people. It is really about standing up to the CEO or, or the leadership. And we've certainly seen that in some Silicon Valley companies where people, I emphasize with compassion, uh, you know, understandably have been afraid to stand up in any serious way to leadership or to say to the board or the CEO or the CFO um, or the, the head of HR or the CTO, look, this just isn't gonna work. Like we don't have the compliance and regulation because the tech is too advanced or because we don't yet know the data sets that we're using with customers around AI, if they're biased or not, or whatever the issue is, or even about more classic issues like sexual misconduct. But you know, you leader, you we are telling you this is not adequate and you need to go above and beyond what we have in terms of in compliance terms. Um, so so it's it's difficult. Um, but the other thing is to model it. And um, certainly people like you who are super sensitive to this and and your audience, you know, show people that you're thinking about what could happen, not just you know, the minimum what you know will happen. And show people that you're thinking about, and I give examples of this in the book, you know, what could be the consequences of your decision? Are they important and irreparable? And, you know, if compliance doesn't fix it, that's the part that's left over for ethics. And it's interesting that you're talking about courage because I, I actually talk about that a lot. And I think a lot of our the people that I know, especially when it comes to speaking up or developing a culture where people are ready to talk ahead of time you know, be proactive and also if something goes wrong, the fact that, you know, getting, standing up at any level in any organization does take courage. And I think it's Absolutely. really important to acknowledge that. And, you know, one thing, so if you're thinking about a compliance infrastructure for more senior compliance people, but even for more junior compliance people, it doesn't matter whether you have one person reporting to you 
or an entire organization of compliance professionals reporting to you, you can reward that. And what I what I do in working with organizations and in particular with compliance leaders is to look at the performance evaluation system and say, how can you integrate into your performance evaluation system a way to recognize courage, a way to recognize the going above and beyond for ethics and taking a little bit of risk and a way for uh, performance evaluations to recognize uh, when people actually do things for their teams or enable their teams to do this ethics above and beyond kind of thinking. And it's different for different people and different teams. One team, it might be you recruit, you know, with diversity and inclusion in mind. Another team might be perfectly diverse and need to watch out because their particular area is at risk of skewed incentives. So have they spent, you know, as an objective this year, really looking at the incentives that their, um, that their compliance processes uh, might skew? Another team, it might be, you know, an example of courage. Has somebody really, you know, stepped up and reported something? Or has somebody stepped up and reported when there aren't adequate reporting options? So there's lots of ways to sort of get this through the organization and to, to, to make sure that courage isn't just at, at the sort of a very senior level. One of the ones that I think about a lot is people who are rewarded for not making a sale or not increasing revenue because there was a problem with the third party or going through the right process. So they've made the non uh, revenue generating decision in, and in most companies that are for profit, it's a revenue generating world. And to do that, and when you reward or you know recognize people for making those calls as opposed to just looking at the, the, the bottom line, I think that is also a really important thing to keep in mind. And it, it is always helpful. I and mean, senior leadership in any level can really help on that. that Absolutely. Is- I love that, Lisa. That's a great example. I use it a lot. Um, And, you know, it's not something, you know, you're not looking not to make a profit. And I should say that I'm very pro-business, very pro-innovation. I don't think profit is intrinsically unethical. But I think that um, both individually and then as a matter of what teams are doing, you raise a great point that we can look at this. And, And one example that comes up in a totally different world is, you know, we all remember the tragic Uh, incidents in Bangladesh in garment factories. Well, one place that the most senior management could have stood up and said, you know, people are telling me in my organization that I can't trace the supply chain from the middle of the U.S. all the way to Bangladesh. My answer to those people is, yes, you can. It's a matter of chains of contracts. You just have to do it. And maybe it's going to cost you a little more money. Um, So it's, it's also standing up and saying to senior management, you know, look, we we can't continue this behavior. We need an investment here. So it's both your great point about um, foregoing profit, but it's also sort of on the investment side where we identify something, especially something that's systemic, that isn't about, you know, a, a particular sale or transaction. Yeah, I think it's really, the Bangladesh is, is a fascinating um, and horribly tragic case. It also reminds people of the losses that you can have when you don't go through that process. Human money, whatever, but it really shows you that not only is doing something that's ethical and would be the the best thing to do, I mean, eventually it also is in some ways turns into the right thing to do. I know there's a lot of discussion and we could talk about it for hours about what the distinctions and similarities are, but, you know, to to look at the supply chain and to blame that, people aren't going to care down the line. Um, No, exactly. But, you know, there are also lines. I mean, I talk about non-binary and nuance and navigating gray and seizing opportunities and mitigating risks. 
but there there are some you know red lines and you know groups of you know impoverished women being crushed by a collapsing building or engulfed in a tragic fire both of which were avoidable they were not natural disasters they were not you know some unfortunate illness that struck someone both of which were avoidable that is really something that you know those companies need to really step back and say what are we doing here yeah absolutely um and we're just going to ask you can you tell us a little bit about the ethics incubator sure of course so the ethics incubator started because or, or i started it because i was really interested in doing a lot of listening to people who were coming from areas that were not necessarily the kinds of organizations that focus on ethics and compliance. So I have a section called Ethics in the Arts, and I've interviewed people like uh, the famous architect Frank Gehry, or the head of the Royal College of Arts in London, or the, the late head of the Victoria and Albert Museum in London, a Sarah Chang violinist. There's also a part about ethics of truth. Uh, as I said earlier, I think both in the world today and within organizations, our willingness to compromise on truth is probably the greatest global systemic risk of our time. So I have conversations um, around the ethics of truth and uh, they, there are wide ranging conversations. Some are with the African-American poet and Yale professor, Claudia Rankin. Uh, one was with Senator Feingold. And I'm always looking for ideas um, to interview. I, um, I put it on pause for a few months as the book launched. And now I'm starting up again, and um, I'm just interested in giving people access to conversations that are more ethics focused, because a lot of these people might be out there talking about life generally, but I think uh, when they actually pause to talk about ethics, many of them hesitate. Um, in fact, Frank Geary started his interview by saying to me, ethics, so I don't know if I know anything about that. Um, and then through these conversations, we see that it infuses all aspects of our personal and professional lives all aspects of culture. Uh, and, you know, as I say in the book, my mantra is that ethical decision-making tethers us to our humanity. And the Ethics Incubator is designed to share ideas and, and really demonstrate that connection to humanity. Great. So I have two other questions for you before I, I let you go. One is, after everything we've talked about, and I think you've highlighted this a couple of times, um, but what particular, if you had one particular piece of advice that you would share with uh, ethics and compliance practitioners, that'd be sort of a practical sort of take home, something to keep in mind, what would that be? No, that's oversimplifying, but thought it might be. Oh, just for sure. Well, I'm going to, I'm going to cheat a little bit, if I may, as an ethics person and, um, and give a three part, a three part answer. I think the framework that I offer in the book basically says to everybody, stop and think before you do. And here's, you know, using this basically helps you stop and think as opposed to leap on the basis of gut instincts, leap on the basis of fear, leap on the basis of assumptions. Um, so the first is to, you know, whether it's to individuals or to compliance teams or frankly to social media companies, you know, press pause before you unleash that innovation on society. Do we need it right now? Do we actually need to rush out and buy 23andMe right now before we understand what the implications are, this kind of thing? Um, and, you know, the, the kind of corollary to that that I think is really important in all aspects of lives, including for any listeners who have children or teenagers, 
I'm really on a rampage against perfectionism. I think perfectionism, first of all, it's neither a laudable goal nor an achievable one. And it is one of the biggest drivers of unethical behavior. Because when we set perfectionism as a goal, whether it's impossible sales targets, whether it's impossible performance at work in some other way, whether it's achieving things in our personal lives, you know, I'm going to run five marathons during COVID, or my children have to go to Harvard. Um, what we do is we set people up to do one of two things. They either have to cheat to achieve it because it isn't, perfection is not achievable without cheating, or they just keep banging their head against a wall trying to achieve it honestly, which leads to the mental health epidemic we have. So I would just say those, those things, I mean, press pause, the framework helps you do that. And really be careful of all aspects of perfectionism as they've been seeping into our lives. Okay, no, that's that's great. And the, the last question is for women in this field, whether it's working as an ethicist or um, in our organizations or nonprofit, is there any specific piece of advice you'd want to give to us as, as women um, to share with that? Well, first of all, um, so... You know, I grew up sort of in an era, as I said, when I started with Sullivan and Cromwell there, I think there were three women partners there out of, I don't know, many tens of men. Um, and I think there's no question that there's a bigger challenge. We've seen the pandemic has had a very disproportionate impact on women of all levels of organizations and education and socioeconomic situations. Uh, we see many of the impacts on careers will last a, a very long time because people in universities have had to delay finishing work to, to go up for tenure or because women have had to step out to take care of children at home and have missed a promotion or all kinds of things. So what I would say is that um, it's a very real issue that we still are not at gender equality in terms of the impact of, of life and work on, on us. Um, I, I just a couple other things I would say is that women have to be advocates for and supporters of women. You know, I've had great uh, men who've been very supportive of me. I've had great women who have. And I've also, frankly, had some women who were not all that nice to women. And so I make it my uh, personal mission to help any women I can at any level. Um, and um, and then finally, back to my, you know, rampage against perfection. People used to ask me when I was at Sullivan and Cromwell, but also even more recently, like, how do you do it all? You have five children. And I would say point blank, I don't do it all. When I was at Sullivan and Cromwell, my children were at home with a babysitter. And when I was home with my children and I was pretending to finish my legal work at the same time as I was feeding them and doing their laundry, I was doing exactly that. I was pretending. I wasn't actually multitasking. I was doing one thing at a time and stressing myself out. So I would just say to women, um, you know, we're all doing so much better. Um, support each other and, and give yourselves a break. Yeah, that is really, really helpful and good advice. We People that I know, we talk about that a lot and trying to accept everyone for who they are and to connect. I mean, people much more often connect on challenges and discussions and things they've been through than everything that went perfectly as well. But on behalf of this community that has many women and uh, men who do support women, thank you so much for taking time to speak with us. Um, I loved the book. Um, so excited to learn more from the incubator and to just learn. And it really, thank you for the, from the Compliance Podcast Network, my co-host, Mary Shirley and I, and I hope you have a great day. Well, it's been such a pleasure. And thank you so much, Lisa. And thank you again to everybody who's listening. 
Thanks for joining us for this episode of Great Women in Compliance. We hope you'll join us in honoring the great women in the compliance field by subscribing to this podcast and leaving a review.